Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen. The Princess and the Pea Once upon a time, there was a prince who wanted to marry a princess, but she would have to be a real princess. He travelled all over the world to find one, but nowhere could he get what he wanted. There were princesses enough, but it was difficult to find out whether they were real ones. There was always something about them that was not as it should be. So he came home again and was sad, for he would have liked very much to have a real princess. One evening, a terrible storm came on. There was thunder and lightning, and the rain poured down in torrents. Suddenly a knocking was heard at the city gate, and the old king went straight to open it. It was a princess, standing there in front of the gate. But, good gracious, what a sight! The rain and the wind had made her look. The water ran down from her hair and clothes. It ran down to the toes of her shoes and out at the heels, and yet she said that she was a real princess. Well, we'll soon find that out, thought the old queen. But she said nothing, went into the bedroom, took all the bedding off the bedstead and laid a pea on the bottom. Then she took twenty mattresses and laid them on the pea. And then twenty eiderdowns on the beds at the top of the mattresses. On this, the princess had to lie all night. In the morning she was asked how she slept. Oh, very, very badly, she said. I have scarcely closed my eyes all night. Heaven knows only what was in the bed, but I was lying on something hard, so that I am black and blue all over my body. It's horrible. Now they knew that she was a real princess, because she had felt the pea right through the twenty mattresses and the twenty eider downs. Nobody but a real princess could be as sensitive as that. So the prince took her for his wife, for now he knew that he had a real princess, and the pea was put in the museum, where it may still be seen, if no one has stolen it. There, that is a true story. The end. And that is the original story of The Princess and the Pea, by Hans Christian Andersen. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen. This is called The Snail and the Rose Tree. Round about the garden ran a hedge of hazel bushes. Beyond the hedge were fields and meadows with cows and sheep. But in the middle of the garden stood a rose tree, in bloom, under which sat a snail, whose shell contained a great deal, that is, himself. Only wait till my time comes, he said. I shall do more than grow roses, bear nuts, or give milk, like the hazel bush, the cows and the sheep. I expect a great deal from you, said the rose tree. May I ask when it will appear? I take my time, said the snail. You always in such a hurry, are you? 
that does not excite expectation. The following year, the snail lay in almost the very same spot, in the sunshine under the rose tree, which was again budding and bearing roses as fresh and as beautiful as ever. The snail crept half out of his shell, stretched out his horns, and drew them in again. Everything is just as it was last year, no progress at all. The rose tree sticks to its roses and gets no further. The summer and the autumn passed. The rose tree bore roses and buds till the snow fell and the weather became raw and wet. Then it bent down its head and the snail crept into the ground. A new year began. The roses made their appearance and the snail made his too. You are an old rose tree now, said the snail. You must make haste and die. You have given the world all that you had in, in you, and whether it was of much importance is a question that I have not had time to think about. But this much is clear and plain, that you have not done the least for your inner development, or you would have produced something else. Have you anything to say in your defence? Will you now soon to be nothing but a stick? Do you understand what I say? You frighten me, said the rose tree. I have never thought of that. No, you have never taken the trouble to think at all. Have you ever given yourself an account why you bloomed and how your blooming comes about? Why, just in that way and in no other. No, said the rose tree. I bloom in gladness because I cannot do otherwise. The sun shone and warmed me. The air refreshed me. I drank the clear dew and the invigorating rain. I breathed and I lived. Out of the earth there arose a power within me, whilst from above I also received strength. I felt an ever-renewed, an ever-ever-increasing happiness, and therefore I was obliged to go into blooming. That was my life. I could not do otherwise. Hmm, you have led a very easy life, remarked the snail. Certainly. Everything was given to me, said the rose tree. But still, more was given to you. Yours is one of those deep-thinking natures, one of those highly gifted minds that astonishes the world. I have not the slightest intention of doing so, said the snail. The world is nothing to me. What have I to do with the world? I have enough to do with myself, and enough in myself. But must we not all, here on earth, give up our best parts to the others, and offer as much as lies in our power. It is true, I have only given roses, but you, you who are so richly endowed, what have you given to the world? What will you give it? What have I given? What am I going to give? I spit at it. It's good for nothing, and does not concern me. For my part, you may go on bearing roses. You cannot do anything else. Let the hazel bush bear nuts. The cows and sheep give milk. They have each their public. I have mine in myself. I retire within myself. And there I stop. The world is nothing to me. With this, the snail withdrew into his house and blocked up the entrance. That's very sad, said the rose tree. I cannot creep into myself, however much I might wish to do so. I have to go on bearing roses. Then they drop their leaves, which are blown away by the wind. 
But I once saw how a rose was laid in the mistress hymn book, and how one of my roses found a place in the bosom of a young beautiful girl, and how another was kissed by the lips of a child in the glad joy of life. That did me good. It was a real blessing. Those are my recollections, my life. And the rose tree went on blooming in innocence, while the snail lay idling in his house. The world was nothing to him. Years passed by. The snail had turned to earth. In the earth. The rose tree too. Even the souvenir rose in the hymn book was faded. But in the garden there were other rose trees and other snails. The latter crept into the house and spat out the world, for it did not concern them. Shall we read the story all over again? It would just be the same. The End Of course, there is a very uh, deeper meaning to that story, and a lesson, of course. I would love to know what you think that lesson might be, so please pop it in the description. I enjoy reading them. Thank you so much for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Fairy Tales of Hans Christian Andersen. This story is called The Saucy Boy. <laughs> Once upon a time there was an old poet, one of those right good old poets. One evening as he was sitting at home, there was a terrible storm going on outside. The rain was pouring down, but the old poet sat comfortably in his chimney corner, where the fire was burning and the apples were roasting. There will not be a dry thread left on the poor people who are not in this weather, he said. Oh, open the door. I am so cold and wet through, called a little child outside. It was crying and knocking at the door, whilst the rain was pouring down and the wind rattling at the windows. Poor creature, said the poet and got up and opened the door. Before him stood a little boy. He was naked, and the water flowed from his long fair locks. He was shivering with cold. If he had not been let in, he would certainly have perished in the storm. Poor little thing, said the poet, and took him by the hand. Come to me, I will soon warm you. You shall have some wine and apple, for you are such a pretty boy. And he was too. His eyes sparkled like two bright stars, and although the water flowed down from his fair locks, they still curled quite beautifully. He looked like a little angel, but was pale with cold skin. In fact, he was trembling all over. In his hand he held a splendid bow, but it had been entirely spoilt by the rain, and the colours of the pretty arrows had run into one another by getting wet. The old man sat down by the fire, and taking the little boy on his knee, wrung the water out of his locks, and warmed his hands in his own. He then made him some hot spiced wine, which quickly revived him, so that with reddening cheeks he sprang up the floor and danced around the old man. You are a merry boy, said the latter. What is your name? My name is Cupid, he answered. Don't you know me? There lies my bow. I shoot with that, you know. Look, the weather is getting fine again. The moon is shining. But your boy is spoilt, said the old poet. That would be unfortunate, little boy. 
said, taking it up and looking at it. Oh, it's quite dry and isn't damaged at all. The string is quite tight. I'll try it. So drawing it back, he took an arrow, aimed, and shot the good old poet right in the heart. Do you see now that my bow was not spoilt? he said, and loudly laughing ran away. What a naughty boy to shoot the old poet like that, who had taken him into his warm room, had been good to him, and had given him the nicest wine and the best apple. The good old man lay upon the floor crying. He was really shot in the heart. Oh, he cried, what a naughty boy this Cupid is. I shall tell all the good children about this, so that they take care never to play with him, lest he hurt them. And all the good children, both girls and boys, whom he told about this, were on their guard against wicked Cupid. But he deceives them all, all the same, for he's very deep. When the students come out of class, he walks beside them with a book under his arm, wearing a black coat. They cannot recognise him. And then, if they take him by the arm, believing him to be a student too, he sticks an arrow into their chest. And when the girls go to church, to be confirmed, he's amongst them too. In fact, he is always after people. He sits in the large chandelier in the theatre and blazes away, so that people think it's a lamp. But they soon find out their mistake. He walks about in the castle gardens and the promenades. Yes, once he shot your father and mother in the heart too. Just ask them. You will hear what they say. Oh, he is a bad boy, this Cupid, and you must never have anything to do with him, for he is after everyone. Just think, he even shot an arrow at an old grandmother. But that was a long time ago. The wound has long been healed, but such things are never forgotten. Now you know what a bad boy this wicked Cupid is. The End and yes, you are right if you are thinking, this is Cupid, who shoots an arrow at your heart to fall in love. Of course, love hurts, right? <laughs> There's a lesson in there, guys. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen. This is a rose from Homer's grave. All the songs of the east speak of the love of the nightingale for the rose in the silent starlight night. The winged songster serenades the fragrant flowers. Not far from Smyrna, where the merchant drives his loaded camels, proudly arching their long necks as they journey beneath the lofty pines over holy ground. I saw a hedge of roses. The turtle dove flew among the branches of the tall trees, and as the sunbeams fell upon her wings, they glistened as if they were mother of pearl. On the rose bush grew a flower, more beautiful than them all, and to her the nightingale sung of his woes. But the rose remained silent, not even a dewdrop lay like a tear of sympathy on her leaves. At last she bowed her head over a heap of stones and said, 
Here rests the greatest singer in the world. Over his tomb will I spread my fragrance, and on it I will let my leaves fall when the storm scatters them. He who sung of Troy became earth, and from the earth I have sprung. I arose from the grave of Homer, am too lofty to bloom for a nightingale. Then the nightingale sung himself to death. A camel driver came by with his load of camels and his people that would help him. His little son was the one who found the dead bird and buried the lovely songster in the grave of great Homer while the rose trembled in the wind. The evening came and the rose wrapped her leaves more closely round her and dreamed and this was her dream. It was a fair sunshine day. A crowd of strangers drew near, who had undertaken a pilgrimage to the grave of Homer. Among the strangers was someone from the north, the home of the clouds and the brilliant lights of the aurora. He plucked the rose and placed it in a book, and carried it away into a distant part of the world, his fatherland. The rose faded with grief, and lay between the leaves of the book, which he opened in his own home, saying, Here is a rose from the grave of Homer. Then the flower awoke from her dream, and trembled in the wind. A drop of dew fell from the leaves upon the singer's grave. The sun rose, and the flower bloomed more beautiful than ever. The day was hot, and she was still in her own warm Asia. Then footsteps approached, strangers, such as the rose had seen in her dream. They came by. Among them was a poet from the north. He plucked the rose, pressed a, ki a kiss upon her fresh mouth, and carried her away to the home of the clouds and the northern lights. Like a mummy, the flower now rests. Rests in his Iliad, and as in a dream. She hears him say, as he opens the book, Here is a rose from the grave of Homer. The end. And that is the tale of the rose that was in the grave, of course, of Homer. Very interesting tale indeed. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen. We are now on the phoenix bird. In the garden of paradise, beneath the tree of knowledge, bloomed a rose bush. Here, in the first rose, a bird was born. His flight was like the flashing of light. His plumage was beauteous. His song ravishing. But when Eve plucked the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and when she and Adam were driven from paradise, there fell from the flaming sword of the cherub a spark into the nest of the bird, which blazed up forthwith. The bird then perished. Into flames he perished. But from the red egg in the nest, there fluttered aloft a new one, the one solitary phoenix bird. 
the fable tells that he dwells in Arabia and that every hundred years he burns himself to death in his nest. But each time a new phoenix, the only one in the world, rises up from the red egg. The bird flutters round us, swift as light, beauteous in colour, charming in song. When a mother sits by her infant's cradle, he stands on the pillow, and with his wings form, form a beauteous and glorious image around the infant's head. He flies through the chamber of content and brings sunshine into it, and the violets on the humble table smell doubly sweet. But the phoenix is not the bird of Arabia alone. He wings his way in the glimmer of the northern lights over the plains of Lapland, and hops among the yellow flowers in the short Greenland summer, beneath the copper mountains of Fablon and England's coal mines. He flies in the shape of a dusty moth over the hymnbook that rests on the knees of the pious miner. On a lotus leaf, he floats down the sacred waters of the Ganges, and the eye of the Hindu maid gleats bright when she beholds him. The phoenix bird, dost thou not know him? The bird of paradise, the holy swan of song. On the car of Thespis, he sat in the guise of a chattering raven and flapped his black wings, smeared with the lees of wine. Over the sounding harp of Iceland swept the swan's red beak. On Shakespeare's shoulder he sat in the guise of Odin's raven and whispered in the poet's ear. Immortality. And at the minstrel's feast he fluttered through the halls of Wartburg. The phoenix bird, dost thou not know him? He sang to thee, the Marseillaise, and thou kindest. Yes, the pen. That fell from his wing, he came in the radiance of paradise, and perchance thou didn't turn away from him towards the sparrow who sat with tinsel on his wings. The bird of paradise, renewed each century, born in flame, ending in flame. Thy picture in a golden frame hangs in the halls of the rich, but thou thyself, often flyest around, lonely and disregarded, a myth. The Phoenix of Arabia. In paradise, when thou wert born in the first rose, beneath the tree of knowledge, thou receivest a kiss, and thy right name was given thee. Thy name. Poetry. And that is a story of how the phoenix was created. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen. This is called The Swan's Nest. Between the Baltic and the North Sea there lies an old swan's nest. Wherein swans are born and have been born that shall never die. 
In olden times, a flock of swans flew over the Alps to the green plains around Milan, where it was delightful to dwell. The flight of the swans, men, called the Lombards. Another flock, with shining plumage and honest eyes, soared southward to Byzantium. The swans established themselves there, close by the emperor's throne, spread their wings over him as shields to protect him. They received the name of Varangians. On the coast of France there sounded a cry of fear for the blood-stained swans that came from the north with fire under their wings, and the people prayed, Heaven, deliver us from the wild north men, and the fresh sword of England stood, the Danish swan by the open seashore, with the crown of three kingdoms on his head, and he stretched out his golden scepter over the land. The heavens and the Pomeranian coast bent the knee, and the Danish swans came with the banner of the cross and with the drawn sword. That was in very old times, you see. In later days, two mighty swans had been seen to fly from the nest. A light shone far through the air, far over the lands of the earth. The swan, with a strong beating of his wings, scattered the twilight mists and the starry sky was seen, and it was as if it came nearer to the earth. That was the swan, Taisho Brahi. Yes, then you say, but in our own days, we have seen swan after swan, so by in the glorious flight, one let his pinions glide over the strings of the golden harp, as it sounded through the north. Norway's mountains seemed to rise higher in the sunlight of former days. There was a rustling among the pine trees and the birches. The gods of the north, the heroes and the noble women, showed themselves in the dark forest depths. We have seen a swan beat with its wings upon the marble, marble crag, so that it burst and the forms of beauty imprisoned in the stone stepped out to the sunny day, and the men in the lands round about lifted up their heads to behold these mighty forms. We have seen a third swan spinning the thread of thought that is fastened from country to country round the world, so that the world may fly with lightning speed from land to land. And our Lord loves the old swan's nest, between the Baltic and the North Sea. And when the mighty birds come soaring through the air to destroy it, even the callow young stand round in a circle on the margin of the nest. And though their breast may be stuck so that their blood flows, they bear it and strike with their wings and their claws. Centuries will pass by, swans will fly forth from the nest. Men will see them and hear them in the world before it shall be said in spirit and in truth. This is the last swan, the last song from the swan's nest. Well, that's a very interesting tale indeed. I wonder if Auntie Grace knows anything of this swan's nest, with it being very important to Norway, apparently. Auntie Grace, maybe you know more about it, because I certainly don't. It's the first time I've heard it. Very interesting tale indeed. Thank you for listening and many blessings.
Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales. This one's called The Two Brothers. On one of the Danish islands where old thing stones, the seats of justice of our forefathers, still stand in the cornfields and used huge trees rise in the forest of beech. There lies a little town whose low houses are covered with red tiles. In one of these houses, strange things were brewing over the glowing coals on the open hearth. There was a boiling going on in glasses and a mixing and distilling. While herbs were being cut up and pounded in mortars, an elderly man looked after it all. One must only do the right thing, he said. Yes, the right, the correct thing. One must find out the truth concerning every creator particle and keep to that. In the room with the good housewife sat her two sons. They were still small but had great thoughts. Their mother too had always spoken to them of right and justice and exhorted them to keep to the truth, which she said was the countenance of the Lord in his world and this world. The elder of the boys looked roguish and enterprising. He looked a delight in reading of the forces of nature, of the sun and the moon. No fairy tale pleased him so much. Oh, how beautiful it must be, he thought, to go on voyages of discovery, or to find out how to imitate the wings of birds and then be able to fly. Yes, to find that out was the right thing. Father was right, and mother was right. Truth holds the world together. The younger brother was quieter and buried himself entirely in his books. When he read about Jacob dressing himself in sheepskins to personify Isil and so to usurp his brother's birthright, he would clench his little fist in anger against the deceiver. When he read of the tyrants and of the injustice and wickedness of the world, Tears would come into his eyes, and he was quite filled with the thought of the justice and truth which must and would triumph. One evening he was lying in bed, but the curtains were not yet drawn close, and the light steamed in upon him. He had taken his book into bed with him, for he wanted to finish reading the story of Solon. His thoughts lifted and carried him away a wonderful distance. It seemed to him as if, the bed had become a ship flying along under full sail. Was he dreaming? Or what was happening? It glided over the rolling waves and across the ocean of time, and to him came the voice of Solon, spoken in a strange tongue, yet intelligible to him. He heard the Danish motto, By law the land is ruled. The genius of the human race stood in the humble room, bent down over the bed, imprinted a kiss on the boy's forehead. Be thou strong in fame, and strong in the battle of life. With truth in thy heart fly forward the land of truth. The elder brother was not yet in bed. He was standing at the window looking out. Mist which rose from the meadows was forming. There were not elves dancing out there, as their old nurse had told him. He knew better there were vapours, which were warmer than the air and that is why they rose. A shooting star lit up the sky, and the boy's thoughts passed in a second from the vapours of the earth up to the shining meteor. 
The stars gleamed in the heavens, and it seemed as if long golden threads hung down from them to the earth. Fly with me, sang a voice, which the boy heard in his heart, and the mighty genius of mankind, swifter than a bird, and than any arrow, swifter than anything of earthly origin, carried him out into space, where the heavenly bodies are bound together by the rays, and pass from star to star. Our earth revolved in the thin air, and the cities upon it seemed to lie close to each other, through the spheres echoed the words, What is near, what is far, when thou art lifted by the mighty genius of mind. And again the boy stood by the window, gazing out, whilst his younger brother lay in bed. Their mother called them by their names, Anders Sando and Hans Christian. Denmark and the whole world knows them, the two brothers. Or is dead. The end. Now that, yes, it's really about Hans Christian Andersen and his brother. But also, there's a deeper thought and meaning to it. Bear in mind, he stood at the window and he's flying. I want you to think about that because there is more to that in a spiritual way. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello and welcome back to the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen. We are now on the top and ball. A whipping top and a little ball lay together in a box, among other toys. And the top said to the ball, Shall we be married as we live in the same box? But the ball, which wore a dress of Morocco leather, and thought as much of herself as any other young lady, would not even condescend to reply. The next day came the little boy, to whom the playthings belonged, and he painted the top red and yellow, and drove a brass-headed nail into the middle, so that while the top was spinning round, it looked splendid. "'Look at me,' said the top to the ball." What do you say now? Shall we be engaged to each other? We should suit so well. You spring, and I dance. No one could be happier than we should be. Indeed, do you think so? Perhaps you do not know that my father and mother were Morocco slippers, and that I have a Spanish cork in my body. Yes, but I am made of mahogany, said the top. The major himself turned me. He has a turning lathe of his own, and it is great amusement to him. Can I believe it? asked the ball. Why, I never be whipped again, said the top, if I am not telling you the truth. You certainly know how to speak for yourself very well, said the ball, but I cannot accept your proposal. I am almost engaged to a swallow. Every time I fly up in the air, he puts his head out of the nest and says, Will you? And I have said yes to myself silently, and that is as good as being half engaged. But I will promise never to forget you. Much good that will be to me, said the top, and they spoke to each other no more. Next day, the ball was taken out by the boy. The top saw it flying high in the air like a bird, till it would go quite out of sight. Each time it came back, 
as it touched the earth, it gave a higher leap than before, either because it longed to fly upwards or from having a Spanish cork in its body. But the ninth time it rose in the air, it remained away and did not return. The boy searched everywhere for it, but he searched in vain, for it could not be found. It was gone. I know very well where she is, sighed the top. She's in the swallow's nest and has married the swallow. The more the top thought of this, the more he longed for the ball. His love increased the more, just because he could not get her. And that she should have been won by another was the worst of all. The top still twirled about and hummed, but he continued to think of the ball, and the more he thought of her, the more beautiful she seemed to his fancy. Thus several years passed by, and his love became quite old. The top also was no longer young, but there came a day when he looked handsomer than ever, for he was glided and gilded all over. He was now a golden top, and whirled and danced about till he hummed quite loud, and was something worth looking at. But one day he leapt too high, and there he also was gone. They searched everywhere, even in the cellar, but he was nowhere to be found. Where could he be? He had jumped into the dustbin, where all sorts of rubbish were lying. Cabbage stalks, dust, rain droppings had fallen down from the gutter under the roof. Now I'm in a nice place, said he. My gilding will soon be washed off here. Oh dear, what a set of rubble I am amongst. And then... He glanced at a curious round thing like an old apple, which lay near a long, leafless cabbage stalk. It was, however, not an apple, but an old ball, which had lain for years in the gutter, and was soaked through with water. Thank goodness, here comes one of my own class, with whom I can talk, said the ball, examining the gilded top. I am made of Morocco, she said. I was sewn together by a young lady, and I have a Spanish cork in my body, but no one would think it to look at me now. I was once engaged to a swallow, but I fell in here from the gutter under the roof, and I have lain here more than five years, and have been thoroughly drenched. Believe me, it is a long time for a young maiden. The top said nothing but thought of his old love, and the more she said, the more clearer it became to him that this was the same ball. The servant then came to clean out the dustbin. Ah, she exclaimed, here is the gilt top. So the top was brought again to notice and honour, but nothing more was heard of the little ball. He spoke not a word about his old love, for that soon died away. When the beloved object has lain for five years in the gutter, and he has been drenched through, no one cares to know her again on meeting her in the dustbin. Well, that's an interesting story, but of course it does have a deeper meaning to it and a lesson, if you'd like to guess. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen. We are now on Two Maidens. Have you ever seen a maiden? I mean, what our pavers call a maiden, a thing with which they ram down the paving stones in the roads. 
A maiden of this kind is made altogether of wood, broad below, and girt round with iron rings. At the top she is narrow and has a stick passed across through her waist, and this stick forms the arms of the maiden. In the shed stood two maidens of this kind. They had their place among shovels, handcarts, wheelbarrows, and measuring tapes, and to all this company the news had come about the maidens were no longer to be called maidens, but hand-rammers, which word was the newest and only correct designation among the pavers, for the thing we all know from the old times by the name of the maiden. Now, there are among us human creatures certain individuals who are known as emancipated women, as for instance, principals of institutions, dancers who stand professionally on one leg, milliners and sick nurses, and with this class of emancipated women, the two maidens in the shed associated themselves. They were maidens among the paver folk, and determined not to give up this honourable appellation, and let themselves be miscalled rammers. Maiden is a human name, but hand rammer is a thing, and we won't be called things. That's insulting us. My lover would be ready to give up his engagement, said the youngest, who was betrothed to a pave hammer, and the hammer is a thing which drives great piles into the earth, like a machine, and therefore does on a large scale what ten maidens affect in a similar way. He wants to marry me as a maiden, but whether he would have me were I a hand-rammer is a question, so I won't have my name changed, and I, said the elder one, would rather have both my arms broken off. But the wheelbarrow was, a di was of a different opinion. The wheelbarrow was looked upon as if some consequence, for he considered himself a quarter of a coach, because he went about upon one wheel. I must submit to your notice, he said, that the name Maiden is common enough, and not nearly so refined as Hand Rammer, or Stamper, which latter has also been proposed and through which you would be introduced into the category of seals. And only think of the great stamp of state, which impresses the royal seal and gives effect to the laws. No. In your case, I say, in your case, would surrender my maiden name. No, certainly not, exclaimed the elder. I'm too old for that. I presume you've never heard of what is called European necessity, observed the honest measuring tape. One must be able to adapt oneself to time and circumstances. And if there is a law that the maiden is to be called Handrammer, why, she must be called Handrammer, and so pouting will avail, for everything has its measure. No, if there must be a change to the younger, I should prefer to be called Missy, for that reminds me of one of the little maidens. But I would rather be chopped to chips, said the elder. Alas, they all went away to work. The maidens rode, that is, they were put in the wheelbarrow, and that was a distinction, but still they were called hand-rammers. Me, 
they said, and they were soon bumped upon the pavement. Me, and they were very nearly pronouncing the whole word, maiden, but they broke off short, and swallowed the last syllable, for after mature deliberation they considered it beneath their dignity to protest, for they always called each other maiden, and praised the good old days in which everything had been called by its right name, and those who were maidens were called maidens, and they remained as they were, for the hammer really broke off his engagement with the youngest one, for nothing would suit him, but he must have a maiden for his bride. The end. And that's another fascinating tale from Hans Christian Andersen. Obviously there's a bigger lesson in there. I'd love to know your thoughts. Please write in the description. Thank you for listening and many blessings.